0: Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at PulitzerCenter.org.
1: Hi, I'm Ali. I work for the Science Gallery. Um, I'm working on a podcast about surveillance. So would you guys be willing to answer a few questions? So what do you guys think about surveillance? Surveillance?
2: Yeah.
1: Um...
3: Depends on what it is, but I think it can go too far. It's funny, I just saw a camera. I think uh, it's good to an extent. I don't think that they should, like, like, I think it's good. If somebody steals something, we have surveillance cameras to, like, check where they went and everything. But, like, as far as, like, invasion of privacy and, like, stuff like that, I don't think that's too good. But, I mean, I I don't think about it too much, honestly. I mean, if they want to watch me do my homework and stare at my camera for hours, and that's fine. So do you feel like you're being watched? Oh, yeah, of course. All the time. All the time. I mean, I know I'm being watched. We're being listened to on our phones right now. Ads pop up when we talk about stuff. I mean, it's it's a fact, but, like, I want to say, I won't say a fact, but, like, yeah, I definitely think, you know, we're being watched right now.
1: I think that in moderation, it could be a good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing. I think that it can get a lot into people's personal lives that they maybe don't want to share with other people. But at the same time, I think that it can ensure the safety of some others.
4: Um, I think it's important to have good surveillance like on our community so that if anything bad were to happen, like there's something to account for that.
1: How do you feel about
0: your information being sold to third parties?
4: Oh, it's awful. Uh,
2: (laughs) It's ubiquitous. You can't really avoid it if you use applications or social media or things like that. But um, if there were alternatives, I would be absolutely interested.
1: Um, to protect yourself from surveillance, um, first off, I would say I just don't think that that's your job to do. Yeah. Um, I think that that is entirely a responsibility that's been thrust upon the common person when they should have no obligation to protect their own privacy. It should be protected for them by that being said. Um, if you could do anything, I think one of the big things is just be vocal about the, the issue. Raising awareness, oftentimes problems like these persist because they exist in silence.
5: Hey everyone, I'm Natasha T. Miller and this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. I can't believe it, but today is our final episode of the series. If you're listening for the first time, before this one, you might want to go back and listen to our previous episodes. We covered school surveillance, parking meters, drones, the foster system, and surveillance of Muslims following 9-11. We also focused on police surveillance in Detroit, including Project Greenlight and ShotSpotter. So today, to wrap it all up, we're taking you back to Detroit. Later on, my co-host Antoine Scott will talk with author, poet, and data justice organizer Tawana Petty about how surveillance impacts Detroit residents. But first, our producer David Lyons spoke with three of our reporters to talk about what's next for surveillance technology here in Detroit.
3: I'm David Lyons, one of the producers for Tracked and Traced, and I'm sitting here with three of our reporters or editors who you've heard from on Tracked and Traced this season. And for our last episode, we wanted to do a little bit of a roundup of what's going on with surveillance in Detroit and talk a little bit more about accountability and transparency with the City of Detroit Police Surveillance systems. So, I'm going to first introduce our reporters. We've got Eli Newman, WDET reporter. Hi, Dave. Uh, We've got Russ McNamara, also a WDET reporter. Hey, everybody. And Bryce Huffman from Bridge Detroit. What up, Doe? All right. Let's start off with Bryce. So, Bryce, earlier this year, you reported for us on ShotSpotter and how the City of Detroit has been implementing that across two districts, but there's been some changes taking place, or at least proposed changes. Can you tell us about what those are?
0: Yeah, so I think first, uh, just a quick recap of what ShotSpotter is. It's an audio gunshot detection system. Uh, They install microphones at specific locations that pick up the sounds of gunfire uh, in the company, uh, ShotSpotter Incorporated, then gets that sound and then determines whether it's a gunshot or not, and then sends it to the police. So right now, Detroit's using it in the 8th and ninth precincts on the far west and east sides, respectively. Uh, And it's only in about a six or so square mile radius right now, but the city wants to expand it to cover 28 miles across the city. Uh, And they want to use the American Rescue Plan Act funds to do that, uh, $7 million to be specific. So that is the plan right now or ShotSpotter.
3: So that's, a, yeah, that's a pretty large investment and expansion plan. And, and in your reporting, you even mentioned, you know, that was kind of always the plan, it seemed like. These first two precincts were kind of the test districts, and now they're they're ready to expand it now that this, this money is available. Have you seen any indications, based on the reports you can gather, on how effective ShotSpotter is? Yeah, so I think with ShotSpotter,
0: it's tricky, because there is the public perception part of it, as where, you know, if you're in the 8th or ninth precincts, do you feel safer having ShotSpotter around versus with the numbers that DPD is giving us actually say. So uh, in the 8th and ninth precincts just last month, the department released a uh, report on ShotSpotter, or I should say did a presentation about ShotSpotter where they said that the 8th and ninth precincts both had a 34 and 53% reduction in Part 1 violent crimes. Uh, and Part 1 violent crime includes things like homicide, non-fatal shootings, aggravated assaults, and such. Uh, so those precincts that have ShotSpotter did see a decline, but the non-ShotSpotter precincts saw an even bigger decline of 63%. Mm. So— is ShotSpotter working? If you ask the police, they'll say yes. They they love having another tool that helps them fight gun violence. But how much is it working? I mean, those, you know, there's not any data that the department has given to the public that uh, shows that ShotSpotter is the reason for these declines in violent crime.
3: Okay, and one more thing about um, this possible expansion. I guess my question is. What's stopping this expansion potentially? Who's opposing it, if anyone? Uh, what process does it need to go through before this this seven million dollar expansion is approved? Yeah, so
0: right now uh, it was supposed to go before city council a couple weeks ago, but the city, um, and, and by the city I mean the mayor's uh, administration at the behest of the police department, actually took it out of the agenda so they could, you know, get more public buy-in. So right now, the city's doing a bunch of community meetings to fight what they're considering misinformation about ShotSpotter. Uh, There's a lot of privacy concerns with it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, concerns about where the data is going. So right now, the police department is trying to convince the community that not only is this technology worth the investment— but that there's not going to be some sort of, you know, Big Brother situation where there's a microphone spying on them. That's where the process is now. But people on city council aren't quite convinced that it is worth the money either. So, you know, the police department is trying to not just convince the general public and residents that live in these areas where ShotSpotter might be expanded to, they're also trying to convince the people who those same residents elected to city council. You know, the thing with with the expansion is, it's kind of on the police department and ShotSpotter, the company to prove the cost-benefit, you know, is, is worth it. And right now, we're not really seeing that proof, so to speak.
2: I, will the, the true test be not necessarily the crime rate going down, but the clearance rate going up when it comes to these crimes? Because Detroit police have a pretty poor clearance rate when it comes to violent crimes— now, if you've got cops responding faster, in theory, you would think the clearance rate goes up. You know that's interesting. You would you would think that, uh, but
0: what also will happen is the courts being so tied up, and uh, in, in large part thanks to the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, it has kind of delayed the data that we would know for now. You know, on you know not only the number of arrests, which we we do have, uh, but we don't have a number of convictions. Uh, and then even if we were to get the number of convictions, uh, the police department isn't telling us necessarily uh, what these arrests are for, right? Mm-hmm. So if a shot's fired in the ninth Precinct and cops show up within five minutes, uh, they might arrest someone who's near the scene. They might arrest someone even who has a gun, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the ones that were firing the shots that got picked up. So that's one of the the many challenges with— Uh, analyzing how useful the technology is and if it's, you know, worth $7 million out of, you know, COVID
3: relief funds. You know, we're talking about uh, this toolbox of surveillance technologies. And um, I want to talk about another one. Eli, you have recently been reporting on Evolve. And it stands apart from ShotSpotter in that uh, it's very easy to spot when you see it. Whereas ShotSpotter, those microphones are, it's hard to tell where they are. But Evolve is uh, is going to be easy to spot. Tell us about what Evolve is, how it came to be, in. Detroit Police, their toolkit now. Sure, yeah. So Evolve is kind of like the latest in technology that the Detroit Police
1: is using to, again, target gun violence. That seems to be one of the the central focuses of the police department is to work on on that specific issue. And so Evolve, and that's spelled without an E at the end, so it's like ends with a V, um, is a weapons detection system that kind of looks like a metal detector. Um, And not necessarily like a metal detector, that you would go through at like an, at an airport, that's like that single file line. It's more so like these gates. Uh, the Boston-based company calls it a uh, security checkpoints, really. So it kind of resembles like these metal detectors that you might see entering a Best Buy or one, another kind of big box store. They're these, you know, kind of plasticky looking uh structures that you would walk through. And, and to your point about it being something that people might be able to see, I mean, there, you know, maybe a, a watchful eye could see it. But they are innocuous enough that they can kind of be set up and be passed through in a way that I don't think necessarily people are aware of what's going on. And so the technology at the core of, of this thing is that it uses these this ultra-low-frequency electromagnetic fields, these sensors that um, are able to scan people who are walking through these sensors using like AI software um, and they're able to detect whether or not somebody is in possession of a firearm. The, the way that Mayor Duggan uh, has kind of explained it, it's being implemented this summer is, hey, we're, we're getting a lot more gun violence as the, the weather gets warmer. We're going to start setting these things up outside of public events. Um, I've heard, you know, heard reports of, of people seeing them at the Grand Prix that just occurred or at Pride at Hart Plaza or around the Movement Electronic Music Festival. But Duggan also spoke about how they might be used around uh, block parties or outside of like late night clubs where a lot of this um, gun activity is prevalent.
3: And how many of these Evolve machines does the city have right now?
1: Yeah, so the city approved a little bit more than $1.3 million purchase of 10 of these units. And I don't know if that's necessarily like... Uh, uh, how many of these individual plastic structures there are, but I it's I would consider it a gateway. So 10 of these gateways. And the way that they describe it is that they're going to be kind of going around town and setting them up whenever they're expecting um, a, a large gathering of people with this expectation that shootings could occur. I, I think a lot of this, what we're seeing is, is developing. Like I said, this is a fairly new technology. So in theory, what is supposed to happen is that there is an officer who is kind of out on the side. They have a display. They're seeing, you know, if there's any kind of red flags that come up when somebody passes through the sensors. Um, they're supposed to s- approach that person, um, ask them to step aside, to see if they have a concealed um, uh, weapons license, a CPL. Uh, um, to, if Because, you know, you can in Michigan, where it's an open carry state, so we can have... Firearms, if they're holstered and visible, right? You can have an AR-style rifle if, you, so long as you keep it on your back and vi- in full display, right, and mm-hmm. not necessarily, you know, cocked and and loaded and you know ready to fire off. And then there are cert- obviously there are certain limitations on bringing those kinds of weapons to public events anyways. But the idea is that I think that they are trying to focus on particularly concealed firearms, something that might be tucked underneath a shirt or a waistband, which is a thing that people are legally able to have in Michigan so long as they do have a license. But it does become this, that there has to be this onus of proof of actually having that permit with you, being able to show an officer, I'm a legal firearm owner and this is my license. And you, you or, can't, or, or you can't get a license from the Wayne County clerk right now. Right, and that, they're, they're, there's a huge backlog of that. I should also say that we we had a police chief here years ago who very much advocated for people to arm themselves in a, in a legal capacity. So we have, and that has been a trend that we've seen throughout the pandemic, that there are more people applying for these kinds of licenses. So there are more guns out there, but a lot of the- so Well, a lot that, of the-
2: that plea came years ago. Sure. The, the police chief was here a year ago.
1: That, that right. this is true, correct, correct. <laughs> yes, yes. This is this is this was uh, Chief uh, James Craig, who is uh, no failed lo- Michigan gubernatorial candidate. Well, he's still well, he's a write-in candidate. He's a write-in candidate. He's still. I, I applaud your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> but but th- this was a police chief that did you know when he when he took uh, um uh, when he took the position around 2013 2014. This was one of his very earlier um kind of statements was hey you know sometimes the police aren't going to be able to get to your neighborhood in time so it's important for everybody to arm themselves and do so in a legal capacity and so now we're seeing this kind of response to that now we have a lot more guns in detroit and there's as a result there's more gun violence and so there is this response now to kind of clamp down on some of
3: that and all of this together um it's it's kind of housed under I guess this network this system of surveillance technologies that actually are I imagine are are used in conjunction with each other right so Project Greenlight is is at participating businesses and it's giving a live feed of uh, of whatever's outside of that business and inside that business you've got ShotSpotter getting some audio soon to be throughout the city some places uh, of public events will have Evolve um, where does this stuff all get processed. I know that um, all of you are somewhat familiar, but maybe Eli, you can tell me what, where is this stuff actually get processed and sifted out? Yeah.
1: So the city has like these real-time crime centers where a lot of the, the surveillance footage, the information from shot spotters being analyzed. And so that's like the primary location. And, and in all honesty, I'm, I'm trying to remember because I know that there was a consideration to actually expand the re- re- real-time crime center that was before city council. And I'm trying to remember if that is something that was, an expansion that was approved. But the, the point being is that the police are are actively... Advocating for expanding these kinds of programs and to have them kind of housed within this real-time crime center, where where police and sometimes non non-police officials are kind of looking over these documents. The the city has made a pretty robust effort to to hire crime analysts, and their job is pretty broad in function. Whether it's I mean, it's a a, a little bit of data analysis, it's a little bit of kind of re- reviewing some of this uh, surveillance footage and and uh, documents, and so. I, I think it's that's really the, the the main brain of where all of this technology kind of gets funneled into. And there's been, you know, the police have had the occasional like media press conference there. And it's, you know, there's these broad, um, there's all these screens. It's a very much like, a, looks like a very high tech kind of uh, situation there. Yeah, it, it looks,
0: and I, and I don't mean to sound funny when I say this, but it, it looks kind of like, like a villain's lair in a in like a sci-fi movie, like it it looks like something uh, out of like a James Bond movie. Like it is very high tech, very. Um, it's like a that, lot of resources went into it. You can tell.
1: It's like that you know in Batman. I forgot which uh, the, the the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. He's got that whole wall of like all this footage, and it kind of it does kind of look like that. Except for I think it's got a little bit more colors, or or maybe it's a little bit more <laughs> HD than what whatever Bruce Wayne had. You know, part of part of what Eli said that often
0: gets brushed over is there are 150 crime intel analysts that work there. Uh, these are not like sworn police officers. These are people whose entire job is analyzing this footage, this data, the audio files from things like ShotSpotter, the images that they get off of cameras. Uh, that is, that's what they do. And, and some of these people also monitor social media. We hear the police talking, especially, you know, spring, summertime, a lot about the Drifting and drag racing detail. Uh, so these analysts, you know, they're they're combing the internet for leads there. And I think overall, when you look at how the city uses its surveillance technologies that it does have, they're all used in conjunction together. And if you ever ask the police about it, they always, you know, anytime there's a criticism, they're like, it's just one tool, you know, as a part of a big network. Uh, it's just one tool we're using to fight crime, you know. So that makes it a little difficult to pinpoint. Which of these technologies is working? Which of these aren't maybe maybe not working as well? Uh, and and then it gets really hard to pinpoint the why some things are working better than others.
1: And, and I think it should be noted that I think part of that that difficulty in assessing the the uh, how well these technologies are being used is kind of like the lack of third-party assessments that happen. And we do know that there was this one uh, assessment done by uh, Michigan State University for Project Greenlight. Now, that was being paid by the city and funded by the city, this research. But analysts there did determine that there wasn't any evidence to show that Project Greenlight was mitigating crime. They didn't say that there was any evidence to support that it wasn't mitigating crime, but there wasn't enough there to say, hey, this is definitely
3: a thing that is working. Except... I think it was carjackings. Yeah. Oh, it was. Oh, it was
1: for carjacking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Huh.
3: It, it. So the thing with with
0: Project Greenlight and and facial recognition algorithms and ShotSpotter, it's not that these technologies don't work at all, or that the police are lying about, you know, what the technology, the limits of the technology, and the capabilities of it. It's it's really about the transparency as far as how well is it working. You know, is it is it getting the bang for the buck that you are proclaiming that it does? And, you know, for things like ShotSpotter, it's potentially a little too early to say one way or the other. For Project Greenlight, though, it's been around six years now. And we still don't have like a clear answer, is this worth the investment? And I think that's something that maybe isn't the biggest problem for the police department. But it, I think it's something that they need to begin accounting for a little bit better. Because... Business owners saying yes, it makes me feel safer doesn't mean that it actually is making things any safer.
1: And it should also be said that there's significant dollars being put towards all of all of these technologies, and so that's there is a financial cost to to making these decisions. And that's
2: where transparency in academia comes in, where they can actually study the cost benefit of these programs, and maybe sure clearance rates went up by a few percentage points and you got a few more arrests out of it. But using crime prevention techniques, improving city services, improving community groups, maybe putting that money into those systems may
3: be the better fit,
2: a better way to
3: spend some money. It seems kind of that there's really not going to be a decrease in surveillance technology in public safety anywhere in the United States. It kind of seems like the creep is happening, and it's just part of it. The same way that being on the internet is part of our lives and our social, uh, just our social fabric It's the same thing. I just feel like this technology seems like it's not going to go backwards. And therefore, the transparency in order to keep refining the systems and really drawing the boundaries and finding out what works, what doesn't, what is safe, what isn't, and people's privacy uh, concerns will need to be addressed. So there's a flip side to all of this, though. So we've been talking about how— the police are using surveillance to keep an eye on potential criminals or to convict criminals and solve crimes and generally make the public safer. There's also the police having surveillance technology turned on them which in the form of body cameras. And Russ, I wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about this because you follow a lot of the police-involved shootings that happen in Detroit, and it seems like the body cam footage availability is a common thread in reporting. And I, I kind of wanted to know what how it factors into your reporting. Well, I mean, there's two ways to get body cam footage, and
2: that's for the police to release it on their own. And then there's the FOIA process, which takes often months upon months. And even then, they will sometimes still fight you for it. And there's usually two kinds of crimes that go into that, or potential crimes, or what you're trying to determine if it is a crime or not, is if the police quickly determine whether or not the shooting by a police officer or the conduct by the police officer is good. And if they think so, then you'll probably see that body cam footage on the news. They'll release it, or they'll have a quick press conference and show. We saw that two years ago with the police shooting of Hakeem Littleton. The city and its residents were already heated and unhappy over the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. There was a summer protest. Hakeem Littleton was shot by a police officer after taking shots at a police officer in Detroit. And Chief James Craig turned that body cam footage and released it uh, within hours. And so they have the capacity to do that with every single crime or any single instance when there is an officer involved shooting. They just don't. And so we will have press conferences by a police chief or one of his top captains, and they will show some footage if they think it's a good shooting. If they don't, then we will barely get anything about it.
1: Yeah, and I think it should be noted that there have been many instances of, of these police-involved shootings where we haven't gotten any any video. There was a, a shooting of, of Jamar Tubbs um, I believe outside of the Normandy Hotel. Um, this was a, a suspect that w- was wanted for a crime, but this was somebody who was killed by police that there was no images or anything um, released. There was the shooting of Nikita Williams, who was um, uh, a woman who had a BB gun at a gas station. And while the police did show stills of footage from that, they were images and not these you know, mm-hmm. body cameras or not even the, a full video. So we don't necessarily know how the police approached this person who was, uh, as family reported later, was in uh, mental distress. And so there seems to be no
2: rhyme and reason. And so if the department doesn't want to willingly give up body cam footage, then that already kind of is a tip that, okay, what's the deal here? Is you know, Because I, I understand that decisions are made in the heat of a the moment. There's always going to be some level of gray area, but at the same time, transparency is transparency, you can release that to us. Now, even after the FOIA process, which, like I said, can last months, there's costs involved. And so, FOIA requests in the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to get this because somebody has to review the body cam footage. It has to be redacted for certain things that are often nebulous, where I had a FOIA request returned, and they said the person who was shot by an officer, they had to blur out his face because they do that for crime victims. But the man who was shot by an officer was actually the one being charged. There's no indication that he was ever treated like a victim. So why was his face blurred out? I appeal, nothing. So it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's It's frustrating because it's inconsistent. The entire process is slow. The pandemic has made an already slow process even worse.
1: And you know, where what are we supposed to do? And I should say i I've made a FOIA request for the the two individuals that I named before, and the FOIA costs are are well over two thousand dollars for some <laughs> of this information. And what I think is really interesting is we're just talking about, body camera footage as it exists in the public sphere for this kind of journalistic accountability that we're sometimes able to do as part of our job. But I was reviewing an internal document. This was an, a, a product of uh, Operation Clean Sweep, was which was this FBI uh, Detroit Police Department investigation into the major violators unit, which is essentially the narcotics section of, of the police department. And uh, in their review of a uh, police body camera footage from the various... Uh, uh, r- drug raids that they were doing on homes and various locations throughout Detroit, they would note that while the initial footage uh, of the actual raid, you know, police officers entering a building that would be seen, but eventually these officers would just take off their vests. So when it came time to actually like dispersing, you know, going through what the the drug seizure was or kind of how they talked to individual um, people at the scene, there wasn't really any footage of that. So this is, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, have some of this footage appear in the public domain, but even amongst like the, the people who are responsible for this kind of oversight within the police department, sometimes it doesn't necessarily even provide enough information for them to figure out what's going on.
3: And all of this, the police just keep getting more and more data, and it's kind of like this, this unintended consequence that they have to deal with, which is, they're accountable and responsible for that much more data, right? I mean, the more they collect, um, and even with body cameras, to supposedly hold them to account when it's available, uh, the more data there is, the more they have to process it and respond to a journalist. And it seems like processes like FOIA are actually used to slow the slow the process down or even obscure what's happening, hoping to just reduce the amount of Uh, stories that can come out, or to control a message about a thing, or control the timing of when something comes out. That's always important, too. Bryce and Eli, I'm sure you guys have also experienced the frustrations (laughs) that um, Russ was talking about. Yeah, filing FOIAs,
0: trying to get information from the police department. And I'll say this, I understand to some degree that when a journalist sends in a FOIA, You're taking someone away from whatever they're working on to then fulfill that FOIA. And I can understand that that takes time and energy, and it's not fun for them. But also, we shouldn't have to pay thousands of dollars for things that the police department often gives out for free. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when something makes—like Russ said, when something makes them look good, they will upload it. They will hold a press conference and say, hey— we're not only going to show you the video, we're going to point to things in the video. We're going to explain what we are seeing in the video. But then, you know, I file a FOIA trying to get a number of convictions from shot spotter alerts and
2: crickets. And An officer, you know, saving somebody from a burning house or a car or coming up and, you know, doing a fantastic job. The, the things that we've been told through, you know, various forms of dramatic media— over the years, that these are the things that officers are regularly doing, that can't get on the TV fast enough. I mean, right. that immediately gets that immediately gets sent out, and so that's that's my problem with the discrepancy. And the city of Detroit has spent uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars beefing up its own media department, so they can put out more of these stories and provide their own newscast. And I'm just like hire five people to worry about FOIAs and make that their permanent job, and
0: you know, we're good.
2: You know, the thing is,
0: the city has a FOIA coordinator, so it's it's not like there isn't someone who processes these things, but wh- again, I'll say the, the person who holds that title isn't—that's not enough. You know, you mm-hmm. need—you have many, many different journalistic organizations in this city, not all have the same uh, editorial vision, of course, but— a lot of us journalists are just trying to get the information to the people right and when you're delaying us by months and months and months you are delaying you know that public accountability by months and months and months we're not even always trying to beat up
1: on the police department in these stories like at the end of the day these kinds of records are important because you know as our as our job as journalists we talk to a lot of people and everyone kind of has their own degree of spin that they put on what they're trying to talk about but documents footage, these kinds of things are, you know, objective, that, you know, it doesn't, there's not. There's no way you can kind of spin some of these things. And so that's why we need to see this stuff so we can accurately report what's going on. We've all read a police report
2: where what is listed and what happens in the police report does not match up with what we have seen on the video.
1: Right. Right.
2: And so these are the instances that we're trying to, you know, prevent from happening in the future. And ideally, you'd think that the police department's would be trying to prevent things like that from happening in the future. But as long as it continues to fly under the radar of everyone, no systemic change can happen without shedding a little bit of light on stuff like that.
5: That was our producer, David Lyons, talking with reporters Bryce Huffman, Eli Newman, and Russ McNamara.
4: Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app.
5: So we heard about the reporter side of Detroit police surveillance. But we wanted to know how expanding surveillance and data systems affect Detroiters. To do that, my co-host Antoine Scott called up one of the leading voices and organizers for data justice in Detroit, Tawana Petty.
4: My name is Tawana Petty. I also go by Honeycomb. That is my artist name, and some people call me Honeycomb. But I'm a lifelong Detroiter, born and raised. And yeah, I love my city, all, all the ups and downs and rounds that come with being in a predominantly Black city. And so I got into this field of work, uh, data justice work is is what, you know, um, how I define myself as a data justice organizer um, and a visionary resistor. <laughs> I got into this work as someone who grew up in a city that essentially has, I would say, suffered under a propaganda assault my entire life. So I'm 45 years old. For my entire life, I've had to figure out how to feel good about where I live when the most mainstream narrative about where I live uh, has been negative and pervasive. And so growing up in that and and, and trying to have self-worth and feel value um, has been challenging. And so as an artist, as a poet who was writing that counter-narrative, right, um, I, I started to learn more about media and its impact and so that took me to the allied media projects as an adult and learning more about like media liberation and what that looks like and how powerful narrative could be i always understood it as a poet but i really wanted to know how it transferred into like the digital age like how can you leverage these other opportunities to write like the counter narrative you know we start off with like thinking about open data right um How do we get data more open and accessible to the community? And then, you know, over the years, I learned a little bit more about not just the uh, accessibility of getting more data into public hands, but how we were being impacted by those data systems. And so I joined the Detroit Community Technology Project as a a coordinator, a community researcher and coordinator. And then through that, we um, created our data bodies. And that uh, was a participatory research project through Detroit, LA, and Charlotte, and really looking at the ways that community members are impacted by these systems. And one of the running themes that would constantly come up across all three cities was, we feel like we're being watched. We don't feel like we're being seen. You know, We feel like our data is being extracted for nefarious purposes, um, but we're not able to leverage that data for our benefit. So if I can't afford my water, it's following me everywhere. So now I can't get a house. Or um, if I make a mistake, you know, and I'm incarcerated for something. And I even though I've served my time and paid my dues to society, I come out and I'm not able to be upwardly mobile. And so really just thinking about the ways data is integrated into these various systems to make decisions about our livelihood. And not just on an individual level, how it impacts our family, how it impacts the ways decisions are made about our neighborhoods and and whether they're disinvested in or invested in.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction of yourself and your work. I think so many of the things that you talked about are important for not only our people here in Detroit, but for citizens all across the U.S. to be aware of, and not just the U.S., but internationally, I think our stories are important. Is there any examples of shifts in policy or changes in policy that we should be asking our lawmakers for?
4: Yeah, absolutely. We should always be asking our lawmakers. We should be demanding our lawmakers take some accountability for the systems that they have inflicted upon us. And so, yeah, Detroit, I mean, Detroit has tried to do so many levels of resistance to these systems. I mean, I'm coming off of a heartbreak with the Detroiters' Bill of Rights and and Proposal P. And, you know, going back to the power and narrative again, um, you know, that's a situation where if you look at it, community members voted overwhelmingly for reparations, right? to put a reparations committee in place but detroiters bill of rights and proposal p was actually reparations in prog- in process you know it was like affordable water truly affordable housing that considers detroiters ami when we're coming off a situation where tens of thousands of residents were overtaxed right as an example It was disability rights. It was, you know, a right to true safety that put all these mechanisms in place. It was ridding us of mass surveillance, et cetera. And so the power of propaganda, well-funded propaganda to squash a lot of resistance movements is a well-documented circumstance. But I will say that Detroiters have been resilient and, and visionary since before I was born, well before I was born. We have a long history of social justice activism here, in Detroit. And, you know, one of the books that I often return to, especially in this moment where you're seeing a lot of union organizing um, is Detroit. I do mind dying, a study of urban revolution. Um, And it's a tremendous book and, you know, lifts up general Baker, may he, you know, rest in power, but, um, and other organizers on the ground in Detroit that were paramount to like union organizing. And then you think about like this resistance to face recognition all over the globe. Right. And so, you know, there have been a lot of cities who banned face recognition. Now I will lift up that most of them, almost all of them have been predominantly white. And that should tell cities like Detroit something, you know, where these communities where there's a high percentage of accuracy um, in in identifying these communities are like, hey, wait a minute, let's get let's get rid of this. And then they're succeeding in it. But, you know, New Orleans, I will lift up New Orleans. That is one predominantly Black city that had a successful ban to get rid of it. So that gives me hope for Detroit. (laughs) But yeah, resistance is is always, anytime you see a system that's marginalizing uh, a community, you can find uh, resistance happening. Visionary, whether it's through art or policy and legislation. But I think people should really pay attention to the Biden administration and its promises through recent executive orders around like, Um, artificial intelligence and things like that and and hold legislators to account to ensure that they're really putting their money where their mouth is and that they're investing in programs that create safety in communities and don't ramp up more and more mass surveillance. And Detroit, there's no shortage of mass surveillance. I mean, I see helicopters, uh, drones, uh, there's surveillance traffic cameras, there's, you know, there's Project Greenlight, there's real-time crime centers, there, you know, officers have access to surveillance on their mobile devices. I mean, there's there's just so much out there, but it has not made an impact on the quality of life of residents, it has not made an impact on safety in the community. And those are the questions that folks need to be asking. If we've spent all these millions upon millions of dollars on these technologies, why don't I feel any safer? And I'll finally say, we know what creates safety. All you have to do is go a few miles outside of the city and see communities that are resourced to have grocery stores on every other block, you know, that have all of these resources that have viable infrastructure. And you're not going to find a police car every corner. You're not going to find mass surveillance and flashing green lights. You're not going to find that scarlet letter that marks the territory as an unsafe place because the investment has been made in the residents. And that's all Detroiters are asking for, that similar investment, investment in our humanity, investment in our quality of life so that we can reduce quality of life crime and push back against that conflation that has made surveillance synonymous with safety
5: that does it for us if you haven't yet you should definitely check out our previous episodes it's been a pleasure sharing this report and in these conversations with you i hope you've got a better understanding of how surveillance technology affects you on a daily basis thanks for listening
3: Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced and edited by David Lyons with additional editing by David Weinberg. Thanks to our guests, Tawana Petty, WDET's Russ McNamara and Eli Newman, and Bridge Detroit's Bryce Huffman. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery Mediator team, Harrison Adams, Aliamel Avila-Sanchez, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU-FCU.